Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Oh, hey, welcome to The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast. And today, my guest is one of the funniest and most generous comedians I know. If for some reason you are not yet familiar with Cameron Esposito, you are in for a treat. Cameron burst into the comedy mainstream seven years ago when she made her late-night stand-up debut on Craig Ferguson's show in a set that somehow ended with Jay Leno declaring, Lesbians Rule. More on that later. Since then, Cameron has created her own TV show called Take My Wife and released a groundbreaking stand-up special called Rape Jokes. Last month, she published a memoir with the inadvertently timely title, Save Yourself, which follows her path from devout Catholic who dated the captain of the high school football team to discovering her identity as both a lesbian and a comedian as a young adult. To get a taste of Cameron's comedy, let's listen to a short clip from Rape Jokes that examines how survivors of sexual assault are typically portrayed on screen. When I think about survivors, the way that they're portrayed in television and film, especially if they're women, I feel like it's like she's assaulted and then she becomes like very good at swords. <laughs> Do you know the storylines I'm talking about? There's like a combat element and that was not true for me. I say the same amount good at swords. <laughs> Expert. Before we get to the interview, I just have one quick favor to ask of you. If you are enjoying this show, please go on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. It not only helps people find the show, but will also make me really happy. Okay, let's go to my conversation with Cameron Esposito. Hello. Hey, there you are. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you great. How about Ooh, how I about like, me? I like your headset. Oh my god, it's my girlfriend's like because she um used to be an agent and it is yeah. like it's like so good and also makes me feel like I'm like really, <laughs> really making deals, making deals. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we talked like I guess a couple of weeks ago for that piece that I wrote about, you know, comedy and yes. I was like at the very beginning of all this and I don't know, it feels like a million years have passed since then. Um, and I know a lot has been happening in your life since then. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I mean, just how are you, how are you coping? You know, the part of a movie where they do the evolutionary, like montage sped up from a cell yeah. from mm-hmm. like a single cellular organism <laughs> to like the fish that then is climbing out yep. of the ocean mm-hmm. that then becomes the stand up comic. It always is a stand-up comic at the end, obviously, since <laughs> yeah, that's like of sort of our final form. Mm-hmm. Um, I I feel like that is what the last couple of weeks have felt like. Yeah. Um, I've had some legitimate work stuff to do, um, yeah. but it has also all been in a new way. 
Like mm-hmm. not one of the things I'm currently doing for work is a skill set I had prior to <laughs> three weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, like your main skill set of getting on stage and telling jokes, that's out. That is broken. That's yeah. currently broken. Yesterday, I was trying to figure out how to set up like a multi-cam shoot to do some stand-up in my house because I've been like practicing, yeah. seeing how that... But I don't have, I mean, it's, I don't have multiple tripods. I was rubber banding a phone (laughs) to a mop and then like another phone is stacked on top of whatever, like an upside down garbage can. I mean, you have to hope it doesn't fall over mid set. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Some of it did fall over. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, there's that, there's like, I was hosting these so I had I had this book that came out. Yeah. And it was I was supposed to go on this massive tour. Um and we were sort of talking about this for the piece. I can't remember if I said this, yeah. but like I canceled the tour like right before everything in the whole planet was canceled, which mm-hmm. was also a funny experience. Cause I was like racking my brain, trying yeah. to be responsible, like going you back. You were a little ahead of the curve. Well, I just like I can't put people through this, but like it just felt like very it felt like I was making a really strong personal choice. And then literally like three days later, it's like, actually like everything's out of your hands. (laughs) Yeah. Don't, don't uh, take yourself so seriously. Um, But I also set up this zoom tour almost immediately. And it, it was zoom bombed like before that was, before we knew about zoom bombing. Before we like knew about that. Anyone coined the term zoom bombing. Exactly. Like, I mean, yeah, I was on with a bunch of writers I really respect, Mm -hmm. 500 queer folks who were like Mm -hmm. signed in from their couches and beds. And I didn't know about the default setting on Zoom being that folks can share their screen. Yeah. So suddenly the most hardcore pornography I have ever seen in my (laughs) entire life, like a, like prolapsed anuses were involved oh, like very wow. prolapsed and Yikes. then also it was like scatological mm-hmm. uh i could not figure out what was happening and i broadcast <laughs> that into hundreds of people's homes <laughs> oh what was the uh what was the reaction in the in the zoom when, when it everybody happened? was so kind yeah i think people just didn't know what was going on because right. it was not like it was kind of sudden and and even yeah. I kind of thought, wait, am I, did I do this somehow? Like how, like what setting on my yeah. account did I accidentally press where then it's like hardcore? <laughs> like I just. <laughs> well, I'm, yeah. I'm really hoping that doesn't happen during this uh, interview, but I think, I think we're safe. I, I think know. we're safe too. Um, and anyway. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it it's never, it's not easy releasing a book in any times, you know, that can be a, a crazy experience as your first uh, book, your memoir, Save Yourself. Now you're doing it um, in this insane time that the title is also taking on some some new meanings for people probably inadvertently. <laughs> I can't um, believe that that is the title of the book. Yeah. How that happened is bonkers, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, because you come up with the title of the book and have it approved like two years in advance, essentially. Yeah. Um, Also, you know, the thing I would say is that, like, it's a very strange time to be promoting anything. Yeah. Then we, like, I just have been looking at my options. And one is that, like, um, that I just, you know, would have kept quiet about the project. 
and just like let it flop. Uh, I did think about that yeah. a little bit because it doesn't it feels, seem like a great option. Well, it's not a great option for like <laughs> my business, yeah. you know, like long term. Um, nobody wants to be in business with somebody mm. who doesn't foster a project across the finish line. Yeah. So it does impact my ability to write future books. But then mm. also, just as a human being, um, I put a lot of work into this thing and. I, I do, I, I mean, I guess I respect myself. So I, <laughs> you know, didn't want to let myself down. And yeah. then, and then there's also hearing from people that this is the kind of thing that's helpful right now, like a story that's not about this, but that yeah, is specific and funny. And I just keep trying to keep that in mind. Yeah. That, that's I, the feedback I'm yeah. getting. I really, I love the book. Um, I really enjoyed reading it. Um, and it was just so interesting too, cause I've seen so much of your standup and, um, and seeing sort of how you take these stories from your life that maybe you've talked about in stand up and then put them into a book, which is just so different and, you know, different experience as a reader, as opposed to viewing your stand up. Um, so, yeah, I mean, how, just to, to back up, I guess, how did this, how did you decide that you wanted to write a book? Well, I was actually asked um, okay. to, to, if I wanted to write a book. Um, you know, I, I'm like a schemer, so I usually have a bunch of different stuff going on. And a, a bunch of years ago, I had a column for the AV Club that I wrote that was about mm -hmm. stand-up. And I, it's, it's like I had some relationships with folks at the AV Club. I pitched them the column. They said yes. And then I started writing a bi-weekly column for them. And then I, my neighbor um, down the street when I first moved to L.A., was one of the first employees at BuzzFeed. Like BuzzFeed didn't even really have like oh, wow. flushed out offices yet. And um, recognized me on the street from, actually this guy is now, he's one of the Try Guys, which are like this, they're oh, yeah. like this, these massively successful like YouTube celebrities. Yeah. Um, but his name is Keith and he lived on the street from me and I was doing, I must've been doing like Chelsea lately at the time. Mm -hmm. He knew who I was from that. And asked me if I wanted to pitch him any video ideas. This is also like, we forget that just a few years ago, it was like, I couldn't necessarily make a video myself. Mm -hmm. Like we just didn't all have movie studios mm -hmm. in our phones yet, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so I um, pitched him this web series that was called Ask a Lesbian. Yeah. Where he, we like set up a website and people <laughs> typed in questions and then I answered them and, ed and they were edited together. And that was um, one of BuzzFeed's like big early hits. Like each video got millions and millions of views. Oh, wow. And from those two things, from the column and from Ask a Lesbian, I was approached by my publisher, Grand Central Publishing. Mm -hmm. I, but I know that's like a lot of detail, but I just <laughs> think that sometimes when you <clears throat> have been, I feel like sometimes it seems like people pop up in yeah. the entertainment industry and it's like it is like you are planting seeds 12 years ago that produce like one ear of corn today yeah <laughs> yeah you didn't come out of nowhere yeah so um <clears throat> based on those two things i got the book deal yeah um and then and then you have to decide what you want the book to be what you want to write about um you know obviously it's about your your life but did you 
did you go in thinking like this is the aspect of my life that I want to put out or these are the themes that I want to you know put forward or how did you kind of then decide what you wanted it to be it was initially meant to be more of a book that you buy while you're leaving Urban Outfitters, you know, mm-hmm. like a sort of lighter coffee table or yeah. book. Mm-hmm. Um, but <clears throat> my standup is so personal and I have used my standup to tell a lot of stories about my life and the setup for a personal story is different in standup. You're cutting things and shaping them so that they have this big punchline payoff. And then also I don't assume every person on the planet has seen everything I've ever done. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that as a comic, it's especially as a comic who then becomes like a multi hyphenate, you, you mm-hmm. end up sort of mining the same stuff different ways over time. Yeah. Um, at least I have. And so I felt like as I, started to really put the book together I was like oh this is maybe this piece from this special and this piece from this album like maybe that's not burnt material in terms of the fact that it is my life you know Mm -hmm. like maybe there's a book that brings this all together and has um an epilogue and things like that there's a part in the in the book where you say you include questions about queerness that people can ask you and then you give some examples of ones that they they probably shouldn't um so like one is uh what was it like going to a restaurant with a woman for the first time um another one so what can you talk a little bit about why you um you know wanted to include that as sort of maybe a message to people who come up to you after shows or or um that kind of thing yeah I mean so I have this I have this podcast that is called query Mm -hmm. and years ago I was listening to, not that many years ago, maybe two or three, however long. The, um, I was listening to Terry Gross interview um, somebody who is an out lesbian. Mm-hmm. And Terry asked this person who was talking about their life yeah. if they had ever had sex with a man. Mm. Um, and like essentially to to check. Yeah. Um, and I was listening to it and I felt really surprised because Terry is a legend, like you just Mm. said. Um, but also I think that sometimes straight folks, um, don't know what to ask queer people. Mm -hmm. I mean, you would never ask, um, and this person was in the sports world. They're like a hugely famous athlete. Yeah. And you would never ask LeBron James, did, did you ever have sex with a man just to check? Like yeah. it's so um, outside of the converse, the most important conversation to have with LeBron James. Like yeah. in the, if I got to speak mm-hmm. to LeBron James for one hour, that would not be on my list of yeah. one hour <laughs> questions. Maybe I'd ask him that if we got to speak to each other for three to four weeks. Like, yeah. hey, just real Maybe quick. You, like, you get there eventually. Yeah. But it just wouldn't be in my first list of questions. And I just thought about the sort of burden that is placed on queer people to talk about sex Mm -hmm. at any time, to answer questions that are coming from a perspective that is like not 
helpful. And um, anyway, that's why I started that podcast. But I bring that all together to mm. say, you know, it's like the number of times I've been asked how my parents mm -hmm. took my coming out versus the number of times I've been asked how I took my coming out. Mm -hmm. Like straight folks are still centered in queer people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you do talk about all of that in the book. Um, so, I mean, has it, was that, was it helpful for you to kind of put that all in one place and, and get it, get it out there um, in the world? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. Right. I mean, I guess that goes back to what you were asking about, you know, how the, it really is like in the first sort of act of my life, because things happened, have happened since starting to write this book that are, have been massively impactful. Mm -hmm. But the first like act of my life being a kid who was super Catholic, and then there's maybe the first many acts of my life, even super Catholic, and then wanting to be a theology major and then becoming a stand-up comic like that arc i you're right i did just sort of want to finish it and yeah. then be able to move on coming up cameron reads an excerpt from her new book save yourself that perfectly breaks down the difference between improv and stand-up hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So I definitely want to talk about um, comedy because this is what this podcast is, is really about. Um, and I'm really interested in your transition from improv to stand-up, which is, plays a big role in the book um, and in your, in your career. Because you really did start in improv. You talk about how you, you started your first kind of foray into comedy was this improv group in college, right? And it was the same group that Amy Poehler had recently been in. Um, so that must have been kind of interesting to see to see that as a, you know, someone who was in that group and then went on to she was already at SNL when you joined the group. Right. Yeah. So she was 10 years ahead of me at BC. Mm -hmm. And the reason that that's important is she like had, you know, I was 21 or whatever. She was like 31. She yeah. was already she'd been through so many phases and I could really see the steps that somebody could take mm -hmm. to build a career. And prior to Amy, I just, because I'm like from Chicago, I'm not from like an arts family. I didn't have any exposure to the entertainment industry. I literally was like, I don't even think this is a job. Yeah. And then seeing somebody that I had this very tenuous relationship to, I was like, mm -hmm. 
got it. You know, like yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll follow the exact same path. This is how you do it. You know, yeah. it just felt accessible. And you kind of went down that improv path for a while um, before ultimately, you know, moving towards standup. And that there, um, so I wanted to ask you if you could read this excerpt from the book um, that really talks about the difference between those two uh, forms. Yeah, I love that because you picked this. Yeah. So let me just say, I love that you picked this. It's really <laughs> great. I like really appreciated it when they uh, told me this is what you wanted to read. Cool. Yeah. What's the difference between improv and stand-up? Improv is essentially acting. You inhabit a character and speak in their voice. Also, it's unplanned. In stand-up, you speak in your own voice from your own perspective, and the jokes are rehearsed, though you'll probably adapt them to the particular show and audience. Finally, improv is for people who play well with others. Class clowns do improv. They're light, fun, and love goofing around. Conversely, stand-ups are standoffish, controlled introverts. We are either the people in class who shushed you because it was our time to speak, or the people who didn't show up for school at all. Stand-up is, the, is also the apex of an adaptive skill. We can suck the figurative, it can suck the figurative punch out of the difficult to out of difficult to digest information, the literal punch out of someone's fist or the Hawaiian punch out of a juice box. When late night hosts deliver political opinions via jokes, they have a greater chance of connecting with a large group of people. A good comic can relax folks enough to broaden horizons and change minds. For instance, if you grow up in a homophobic world, jokes can push for acceptance by planting the seed of a new idea, like that gay people are people. That's one reason I was drawn to stand up so I can make the world safer for me to live in by cleverly introducing myself and my ideas. It's manipulation used for good, though it can also be used for evil. If you're someone who worries about your value, like you've had crossed eyes or feel strangely about your body or still carry the tiniest inkling that you may end up in hell, stand-up provides maximal emotional output with minimal interpersonal risk. If I was a if it, if I was a totally balanced, perfectly adapted human, I wouldn't have to charge people to hear about my fears and missteps. I could just tell them to a trusted friend. But who trusts their friends? So thank you for buying this book. Please don't review it. Thank you so much for reading that. Um, I I love that because it really does break down this difference that I feel like a lot of comedians have talked about over the years, but it really distills it. Um, so and you kind of maybe thought you were an improv person and then realized you were a stand-up person. Is that a good way to to put it? And how you, and how did you come to that conclusion? Yeah, I wasn't the biggest outcast um, from like an outsider's perspective, Mm -hmm. say in grade school or in high school or in college. In grade school, I was not super popular um, because I was really goony. I had, like I said in here, like glasses that were worn over an eye patch, mm-hmm. a bowl cut, like, um, but I went through this transformation sort of later in my younger years where, um, because I developed an eating disorder, my body suddenly looked pleasing to other people mm-hmm. in a certain way. And then I carried this confidence that that gave me, but like the joking around that feeling like a goon gave me and I married those two things together. I went to high school and even though I was like a real weirdo, um, 
you know, I wore like white steel-toed platform Doc Martin boots, which were not to uniform code. <laughs> um, I dated the captain of the football team and I was pretty well liked and I was really involved in school. Like I was in student government and things like that. By the time I get to college, I just had these, I had like this sort of outside world going on. And then like this inside world going on Mm -hmm. where again, you date the captain of the high school football team. Like I was pretty widely accepted. I think I was well liked from my peer by my peers. I was voted next Janine Garofalo. That was my superlative in oh, the wow. in the um, high so, school. That's so nineties specific. Isn't it so specific? Um, <laughs> and also very funny when you then meet that person. Yeah. Did you tell her that? <laughs> I've never told her that. Um, I will have to tell her yeah, that next time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but um, anyway, I. I just feel like there was this way that I was sort of skating through the world while closeted that created this difference between what was going on outside and what was going on inside. So Mm -hmm. the outside me, it makes sense that I made that, that I made cuts and got cast in this hyper competitive improv group. Mm -hmm. It's like the oldest improv group in the country. There's a ton of pride about it. Oldest collegiate improv group in the country. There's a ton of pride about it. Um, I went straight from rugby practice. I was like a jock. You know, I think mm. in terms of what people thought was happening, I was an improviser. But yeah. what was really happening on the inside is like I was destroyed and um, ashamed and scared out of my mind. So eventually the comic on the inside sort of moved through the layers mm-hmm. and emerged. Yeah. And as you say in the book, it's stand up is such a more is such a more personal or can be such a more personal art form than improv which is mostly goofing around and characters and and is really fun but with stand up when was the first time that you once you started doing stand up when was the first time that you kind of got something out there personally about yourself that felt like a revelation or or like you were really sharing something real i mean it was right away Mm-hmm. I started doing stand-up before things were okay with my family. You know, I was still in a time of enormous tension with my parents. Um, my siblings were on board with my queerness, but it was very, but it was like something we didn't talk about as if it was a big deal. Actually, mm-hmm. my little sister might might not have even known yet when I first started Mm-hmm. Um, as my parents asked me not to tell her. So there was all this stuff going on and standup was the first place that I really stood, like really was in front of people saying I am gay and not getting input back mm-hmm. because just a crowd, there's too much for direct input. Although I like certainly also got direct yeah. input <laughs> um, <laughs> via heckling or like people saying shit after shows or people saying that they were into it. But Um, it just sort of took away the other person's ability, right. And space to respond. And I needed that Mm. when I started doing standup, like I really needed that in my life. Yeah. I think there are obviously pros and cons there too, because standup, it has that, that, um, that personal element, but it's also, I think a harsher, uh, club environment, you know, um, in terms of you talk about, having to go on bills with uh, comedians who are maybe making homophobic jokes or making 
um, you know, sexist jokes and that kind of stuff. So how did you kind of deal with that at the beginning? coming from the friendlier improv world <laughs> well i started in i just want to say as a as a mm-hmm. sidebar i started doing improv in boston where in my experience improv was really heady but when i moved to chicago which was mm. then the center of the improv world yeah men who were my scene partners did not know what to do with me it was yeah. so male dominated mm. that the number of times i got asked by another character, like I'm playing a character, they're playing character. The number of times that the scene ended, ended or contained a moment where the dude that I was performing alongside asked me to give him a blowjob, mm-hmm. it was it was constant. And also very strange because in improv, you're not supposed to suggest anything that can't actually be done on yeah. stage. So <laughs> I was just very confused about like, so I'm sorry, what do you think is like gonna happen here like you think i'm gonna am i am i supposed to like get on my knees and and mime this like how you know and i just felt like on top of that you're not supposed to say no right exactly you have to say yes you know that is one of the things that actually drove me out of the improv Mm -hmm. world is that stand-up actually in some ways at least when you're on stage Mm -hmm. you are the boss of the thing and so you don't have to say yes and to the other comics performing around you or mm-hmm. to the audience. Mm-hmm. You kind of actually, it's the opposite. You're supposed to be like, fuck you, I'm holding this space. Yeah. And that was appealing at the time. Um, but in terms of off stage, I do think that in improv, there's sort of like a feeling of we're all in it together doing warm ups. Mm-hmm. That like in stand up, it is like my experience in the early times is like, we are not in this together. Like everybody here sort of has a personality disorder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're in the back of the bar. We're yeah. like hazing each other. Um, I mean, it's a group of friends. It's a group of friends that are not necessarily nice to each other. Yeah. Like it feels like the way that you see, you know, like the older brother treat the younger mm-hmm. brother in the movie weird science (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah and i think you talk about how the like the the classes of comedians like the people who were already doing it when you were doing it you'll always view as uh sort of an older generation even if they're only a couple years uh you know removed from you yeah this is really interesting i'm i'm so curious about how specifically this time that we're living in right now Mm -hmm. could potentially reorder things in the stand-up world because the internet has already democratized. Like when I was coming up, stand up was not a democrat democracy. You mm-hmm. you have to be good to advance, but yeah. you also have to had to know your place. Mm-hmm. Like you never got to headline without host without first like open micing at the place, mm-hmm. then hosting, then featuring. You had to like hang out there in the back and support other comics. You had to um send in physical tapes you had to like work on the booker over time have them know you and now because the internet has like i that's i didn't start forever ago i started in switching from improv to stand up around the same time that like twitter and youtube were created mm-hmm. yeah um but even at the beginning comics weren't really using that it was like a diary Mm-hmm. And then there was the Rob Delaney era of like, I'm going to write jokes and get hired off of my writing. Yeah. On Twitter. And, yes. And like Megan Amram, those mm-hmm. people I think of as like really yeah. good examples of that. And then there was the next version, which is like, um, 
Oh, and during the I'm going to get hired off of writing jokes on Twitter, I think people that started on YouTube or like making videos, they were really disparaged in this mm-hmm. in the hardcore stand-up world. Yeah. It's like, fuck you. You have to go out there and like earn your stripes by suffering on stage. Yeah. Like you can't jump the line by making videos. Like that's not what this is. That is no longer true. Yeah. And right now there is no live performance. Yeah. And I'm watching people <laughs> make these really creative you know, TikToks or like whatever video yeah, on Instagram whatever videos, platform. Yeah. Yes. I mean, the people who know how to do that now have a leg up and the people, the like, you know, hardcore club people who, you know, that's their only skill, then they're going to kind of suffer right now because they don't have, they can't do anything else. Yes, it will also make the generation that's just starting right now, it, I think that this time is going to, like, I wonder what that will mean in terms of live performance. If you mm-hmm. literally cannot start in live performance. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas before, um, like, that's a massive shift in a decade. Mm-hmm. I would say that's just about 10 yeah. years from folks being like, you make videos. Like, that's not what we do. To mm-hmm. like now, uh, that's, that's literally a, what everybody that's does. That's all we do. <laughs> that's all yeah. we do. Yeah. That's wild. Um, so... Uh, the one of the things I wanted to talk about with the sort of the book and stand up and sort of how you craft this, the same story for different mediums um, is your last special, which I got to see you perform um, really early on, which I was really grateful to to get to see it at UCB. Um, and it was called Rape Jokes, which is kind of a term that you were reclaiming from the other people who use that term. Um, and you so that's a story you know a very personal story that you tell in that special and that you also tell in the book so how do you can you kind of use that as an example to talk about how you craft material and for those two very different mediums yeah i mean for me that was actually one of the easiest things i've ever written and i uh, as a comic, as a stand-up, hmm. and I don't mean because the topic was easy, but I just like woke up with a. I literally like sat up in the middle of the night and was like, "Rape jokes!" Like that's mm-hmm. the title of the thing. Yeah, I went out and I um, booked long runs at small theaters, so I would do eight or ten shows at a hundred percent at a hundred person theater, which is like not usually what I do, mm-hmm. and just run it again and again. Have like interaction with the audience after I'd go out and meet everybody they would sort of talk to me about their histories and then that would impact the next night's performance it was I've never worked like that I mean I guess maybe it's the equivalent of if you're doing the Edinburgh Fringe Festival but if you're doing it in multiple cities because I was performing every night I think I did it in eight cities and the I just had like such a like I'm like I know I want to put this out I know I need to find the arc. Um, I like actually loved working on that. It was really mm. hard. I loved it. Writing it was was like almost impossible. <laughs> yeah, for <laughs> because, the book. Yeah, writing it for the book was almost impossible because, you know, a story like that, that is that painful and that shameful, mm-hmm. you know, I know there have been... Um, like I think about sort of the thesis statement of something like Nanette that's essentially like 
I am making myself smaller in some ways by joking about myself. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily disagree with that. I'm saying that some, in some ways, as a coping skill, like I need to take the power out of the thing for me. Mm-hmm. Like that is not necessarily an, a bad thing inherently mm-hmm. to give something that is unlivable the lightness that lets you live. Mm-hmm. And I think that writing about it for the book was was a heavier experience mm-hmm. because it didn't have this pressure release that as a person I have really benefited from. Like I really love that about stand up. Yeah. And um it's actually been one of the most difficult things about the last couple of months because for a couple of weeks because my girlfriend has been really sick with coronavirus and yeah. I have been talking to so many friends about it. Mm-hmm. I have a ton of support. I'm not alone having this experience alone, but like um, that boost of sharing with a community mm-hmm. is that lightness is helpful to me. Yeah. So I did not find that in writing the book and yeah. actually the worst part about the book was when I had to record the audio book right. the day that I read the story about sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's, you know, it's, um, cause I'm speaking it out of my mouth, which feels mm-hmm. very personal. Yeah. And I, there's an engineer that I had met like three days prior. Yeah. He was such a nice man. Mm. We are essentially stranger, strangers. Yeah. He's sitting like in a booth. I can see him, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm telling him, like I'm telling one person who is yeah. a man, yeah. you know, this story. So and, different from, from performing it on stage, you know, where you're getting, you know, where there's a community feedback and. Yeah. And for, and for some reason also like the, the intimacy of, so more souls dilutes intimacy. That's right. again why like if you're somebody that that struggles with intimacy, I I have been working on this in myself and it's not it doesn't not come natural to me mm-hmm. to have intimate conversations with friends. I've been working on it over time and over years. Um but if you're somebody who struggles with intimacy, telling 3000 300, 3,000, 30,000 people, a story mm-hmm. is amazing. Yeah. It's, there's no intimacy at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, telling one person the story and it's the full story and it's undiluted and it's mm-hmm. not that funny and they're listening in their headphones. Um, that was like, I, we we're supposed to do a full day of recording and we did that, that chapter first and I, I had to go home. Yeah. <laughs> that's it for today actually you know what i god bless this god bless this engineer i was like i think i can still keep going like i like was like just sit down essentially was like breathing heavily the engineer Mm -hmm. was like you know what let's go ahead and call it like (laughs) god bless yeah um so you so you ended up putting that uh special up on your website and i know you raised a, a ton of money for for rain um which is great um what how did that decision come to be that you decided to you know kind of release it yourself and i am curious was there any resistance from 
um, you know, some of these larger platforms, whether Netflix or others to, to release that special? Um, yeah, I think that, yes, there was, and that's mm-hmm. not, that's not, um, You know, I knew what I wanted the content to be, and I also mm-hmm. knew what I wanted the title to be. I think the yep. title is extremely produ- provocative. Right. Um, I also think that the content is um, not so provocative. And I don't mean like that it is uh, chill. I mean that it is like gentle. Like yeah. I think I, I'm very strong in my delivery, but it, it also sort of paints this really full picture of why I think this happened in my Mm -hmm. life and my opinion about the person that assaulted me. And Mm -hmm. I think that it's a a really, yeah, I think it's, I mean, in my mind, it's a gentle view Mm -hmm. while being specific. And I think that, um, I just think it's not something that, people knew 100% what to do with. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I knew what to do yeah. with it. I mean, that's how that's how it happened to me. I was, um, I used to hang out with that dude. We would play this game together. We would play this game uh, where we threw a dart at a dartboard. And if we hit the dartboard, you shotgun a full beer. And then if you miss the dartboard, you shotgun a full beer. So it was hazy rules. <laughs> One night we were playing that game and then we were back in my room, and I don't have a full memory of the evening. I have flashes of what happened. I know that I didn't say yes. I also know that, like, I couldn't have. Like, I was fucked up. And I used to tell this story at parties as, like, a funny thing that happened to me. Like, that's, I think, how disconnected so many people are from our own agency. Like, I didn't know that I... I could not be into this. This was a funny story I told until literally a dude said to me like, that's a not funny story. I was gonna say, did you have people saying like, well, we'll put this out, but you can't call it that, or you can't, or you have to take this out or thing, things like that? It didn't so much happen like that because it all happened so quickly. It just mm. was, you know, um, we're starting to have some conversations. The timing was something mm-hmm. that people were talking a lot about. You know, everything has to, um, things are slow and methodical Mm. in Hollywood Mm -hmm. because a lot of times people are playing the stock market. Like it's, you invest Mm. money because you want to return. There's scheduling. There's like, you know, we already have 10 women. Yeah. 10 is generous. (laughs) Let me, let me take that back. We already have two women for our slate for Mm -hmm. the year. You know, we already have, um, our May planned out or whatever. Mm, and and by the way, yeah. like I totally get that. I'm not actually, yeah. I just was able to figure out um, my manager also represents Jonah Ray, who's a friend of mine. And mm-hmm. he suggested that Jonah might come on as a producer. And I was in New York running it. And I called Jonah and said, like, how can we get this made essentially? And he brought um, his friend Paul Bonanno on as a director and mm-hmm. Paul worked for free. Um, my oh. friend who's a set decorator decorated the UCB for free. Uh, 
but I paid for the rental mm-hmm. of um of like one piece of equipment behind me. Um, I paid for the rental of cameras. Our DP worked for free. My producer Hannah Settle, who like produced it on the day, worked for free. The UCB donated the space, and I can't remember. I wish I could remember the. I think we made it for a thousand dollars or something like that. Wow. Yeah. Um, and that just includes equipment rental, things like mm-hmm. that. And then it was the planning for it. It was planned in 10 days and it was then released. Uh, somebody also donated their time in creating mm. the like web portal. And it was released mm. like two weeks after that. Yeah. So it just felt like it was, was, yeah. Speed was of the essence. Yeah. Well, it just felt like it was of the moment. I mean, mm-hmm. it, there's so much going on right now. I think we forget how that, um, Actually, I'm so glad you asked me this because it's really helping me to have context for how I feel today. It's like I this stand up is really my like art. Like that mm. is my medium. I I think I can also be a good writer. I think I can sometimes be a good actor. You know, like I work in a lot of different ways, but like stand up is my original medium. Mm-hmm. And I had um started talking about my history as a survivor of sexual assault. And this is when like every two days somebody was being outed for their history Mm -hmm. and I would get press inquiries from like any time. And I'm sure this is true for anybody else who kept forward, who came forward that was like Mm -hmm. a a public personality. Anytime a dude that I did not know was being outed, Mm -hmm. I would get like inquiries to write pieces about it, to Mm -hmm. make comments. I would get like, you know, phone calls, emails. And I just felt like um, there was so much energy at the time to comment on other people. Mm -hmm. I just had no interest in that. I wanted to like tell my own story. Mm -hmm. And so I, it really lit a fire to figure out how to do that um, and do it in a way that was impactful. Yeah. With like the fundraising and everything too. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about uh, this quote that you wrote that's part of a Vanity Fair essay that you wrote about the, um, the publisher, your publisher having um, also putting out Woody Allen's book. Um, and you said, it couldn't be clearer to me that the Me Too movement is over. So I, I, I wanted to know what you meant by that. Yeah. Well, first I want to say my publisher did not end up putting out Woody Allen's book, Mm -hmm. which is really amazing. And it's because the employees walked out. Mm -hmm. Um, and also because the Pharaohs, um, stood up for for themselves, which is amazing. But, um, and I also got a little bit of backlash for that line actually, because, you know, the Me Too movement wasn't, I didn't start the Me Too movement. That was Toronto Burke. Mm -hmm. I'm maybe not the person that gets to decide it's over, but right. it just to me mm-hmm. feels clear that the arc of, you know, Trump gets elected president. We all have heard everything he said already. We know mm-hmm. he's a predator. We can see it in his face. He's menacing uh, his rival on national television during a debate. It, it was, I think for survivors, it was so triggering to watch the way that he was um conducting himself mm-hmm. like he just it's so clear like he's just like yes this is who i am yeah um and then i look at that as taking the me too movement which had already started but really um moving that into this new speed of mm-hmm. you know 
folks are getting outed, um, people are beginning to face consequences. And then there's that sort of mm, coasting time when uh, every two days there's a person being outed. It's mm-hmm. like, it just feels like that's what the news is right now. This person, yeah. this person, this person, this person, this person. Bill Cosby faces some faces some consequences. Mm-hmm. Harvey Weinstein faces some consequences. And then now it feels like we're on the path toward rehabilitating careers. Right. Like Woody Allen releasing a memoir being mm-hmm. a direct example of that. Yeah. Like for some reason, his career is still really important right now to people mm-hmm. or has become again really important to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I just nope, hang I, up on you. No. no, I got you. I got you. <laughs> anyway, so I, uh, that's the part that feels like it's over Yeah, is when yeah. we start to care again, mm-hmm. the most about protecting offenders. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that the person who you were getting asked to talk a lot about was Louis CK. I would imagine as a comedian, one of many, like one of, one many. of many. Yeah. And he just put out a special on his website, uh, this past weekend, um, which I saw a lot of people commenting, you know, he didn't, uh, he's not donating any proceeds to, to rain or any other organizations, even though he's, you know, charging people for the special on his website, because I don't think any platform would pick it up. Um, it's just ironic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I could use a hundred thousand dollars, which is the money that I donated to rain, mm-hmm. but, um, that's not, that's not where I, Here's what I'll say. Mm-hmm. I am proud of myself about that decision that I made. Yeah. And, you know, when you're a survivor of sexual assault, that is shameful. You feel shame. Mm-hmm. I have felt shame. Felt, um, you know, the whole thing. It's my fault. Here's how I contributed. Here's the way society contributed. Like, I, I for a long period of time in my life, I didn't even place that that was really what had happened to me because it was like a college date rape situation. Mm -hmm. Um, And I say all of that to say like, that's the way I can go to sleep at night. Yeah. Is by telling myself like, I'm proud of the choices that I made. Up next, Cameron looks back on the late night TV moment that changed her life forever. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm going to make a hard transition now. Uh, Ooh, to, let's do it. <laughs> to, the, to the next. See what uh, I'm saying? It's so yeah. good to laugh. Yeah. Otherwise, it's impossible. Because it gets you get stuck down in the muck. You gotta laugh. Yeah, yeah. Let's 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 lighten things up. Um, <laughs> so, uh, what what I want to do now uh, is kind of go through some of the um, credits from earlier in your career and see if there's a a story or memory <laughs> that pops out to you. Cool. What 
what kind of comes to mind. And I think we have to start with sort of a foundational moment in your career, which uh, I, I wrote about, um, I think at the time and, and more recently, which is your, which I believe was your late night debut on Craig Ferguson when uh, when he had Jay Leno on the couch with him and you <laughs> delivered that set. Um, and it kind of became this big thing, um, I think for a lot of people, uh, because Jay Leno called you the future of comedy and then shouted uh, lesbians rule. Um, shouted lesbians rule directly into the camera. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I also know that, you know, it's going to take some getting used to the idea of two, two women getting married. So I'll answer some questions that some of you guys might have out there. Um, so what are we going to wear? You know, people ask that. What are you, what are we wearing? Uh, two denim dresses. <laughs> Obviously, Mr. Leno, I think you like, uh, denim. Actually, I think you like denim. <laughs> he's a big denim fan, you know, cars and denim. That's his thing. Are you saying he's a lesbian? I'm yeah. calling him. Listen, I didn't want to be the one to out you, but you don't get that kind of swoop in front. You know what I mean? You know, I married a woman, too. <laughs> oh, God, this couldn't be going better. I love this. Hey, you're dealing with Statler and Waldorf from the Muppets now. Um, so can you kind of take us uh through what was what went through your mind when when that was happening? Yeah. Well, before the sh before the taping started, uh Jay and I were in the same like we had separate little dressing rooms, but mm -hmm. then the same um general green room where there's, you know, food and stuff and I had my joke no notebook out and I was like pacing around. And um I actually, you know, when somebody does you a solid like you remember that for life. And he mm -hmm. came up to me and was like, you're the comic on the show. Right. And it just was amazing to have somebody so much older than me, more established, identify this specific way I was pacing and like, see in me that mm -hmm. I was a comic. Like yeah. that really was like, fuck yeah. So because we had this teeny inner interaction, when I walked out, Jay decided to stay on stage to watch my set. And mm -hmm. Ferguson wasn't even taping stand up live at the time they would bulk tape them oh, okay. so they'd tape like 10 stand-ups in a row it was completely strange that jay decided to stay usually mm -hmm. the guests would leave he was sitting there craig ferguson was, was sitting there they were sometimes a, a stage where something shot is really big they were mm -hmm. very close to me and yeah and next to each other it's like at the time i mean jay had just announced that he was leaving the tonight show that's why he was on ferguson oh, okay. and it's yeah. like these two legendary hosts i mean however you feel about jay it's like to have those two guys mm -hmm. who i would not assume would have any interest in the jokes i'm telling yeah um I'm much younger and queer and all this stuff. And I started talking about wearing a denim wedding dress because I was engaged at the time and said like, like Jay, like, you know, a lot about, you know, denim or whatever. Like mm -hmm. I just referred to him because he yeah. was sitting right there, this ad libbed line. And then, um, that's when Craig spoke back to me and, and we had this interaction and, It was like amazing. Yes. Craig said back to me, like, 
are you calling Jay Leno a lesbian? I said, you don't get that hair swoop without some knowledge of the community. <laughs> that was all like ad-libbed. Yeah. And I, I thought I had fucked it up tremendously. Really? Like I walked off stage and I apologized to the booker. Because you said, weren't like supposed to be acknowledging them or? Because you turn in your script when you're mm. on TV. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, you know, I'd never been on late night before. And mm. I was like, I mean, they approved the script. And then I went off script yeah. and like. I, I, fuck, I ruined it. Out. Like I'll yeah. essentially never work in this town again. And the booker <laughs> was like, are you kidding me? That was incredible television. Yeah. And I like walked back into the green room. Everybody was like mouth agape and clapping. And I just was like, what? I mean, it was That's um, amazing. I thought it. Yeah. I thought I tanked. <laughs> That's great. Um, you, uh, you mentioned Chelsea lately um, was something that you did early in your career. And I was just curious if you had any, <laughs> Chelsea, Chelsea lately stories. That show is one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do. <laughs> really? Yes, because um, this is going to sound very snotty. So, so, but follow the whole thing. Um, they don't. They when you were a panelist, they did not send a car for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand how snotty that sounds, but you'll understand why I'm saying this in a second. Yeah. They um, would send the topics like a half an hour before you were supposed to report for hair and makeup and I lived a half an hour from the studio. So I would be driving there and I would, um, (laughs) I would go on speakerphone with my then partner who would read the topics to me and I would try to like think about them as I drove there. Yeah. And like careening essentially off the highway as I was going. (laughs) And then when you show up, um, the booker would come in to meet you in hair and makeup and be like, so what are your jokes that you have? And I would just be like, like Uh, tossing papers in the air. I mean, I think some people were really built for the, um, the sort of like Chelsea angle of jokes for Mm -hmm. me, the, cause she's like so sarcastic and kind of like the tone of that show was, um, harsh. Mm -hmm. And I would just be like, Please help. What's a better <laughs> way of saying this? Like, I, basically nothing. Yeah. So, yeah, the last one that I want to talk about was Take My Wife, which is um, which is a, a great show that you did. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you had the kind of unique experience on that show of of doing the first season and then having the the uh, network get canceled as opposed to the show get canceled, which not everyone can say that has happened to them. Um, so I know, um, I know and obviously you did that show with your, um, your ex partner, uh, Rhea Butcher. Um, so, I mean, how do you, how do you kind of think about that show now? Um, I don't often think of mm-hmm. it because it feels like, because a lot of things have happened since then. I will say. I can't believe that it is true that I have uh, made a show called Take My Wife <laughs> that um, <laughs> where the personal relationship ended the way it did. I can't believe that I've released a book called Save Yourself in a Pandemic. I, um, you know, in some ways, the last bunch of years of my career have been It's all just sort of been doing the best you can in the situation that you never would have chosen. Like mm. I nobody would ever choose 
to have their network canceled. We had already finished the second season shooting it and then had to edit it Mm. without ever knowing if it would be picked up or purchased or ever seen. Mm -hmm. Um, And it did end up being purchased by stars. Yeah. Uh, But like I had to go in every day and work with the editors and just be like, Hey, like, (laughs) thanks for your time and everything. Um, And, you know, then working on, this special and then self-releasing it. And it did go, you know, it went really well. It got like Mm. all of these positive reviews. And then it also is, you know, just on my website. And that Mm. is a different version of a special than maybe I would have thought would have happened Mm -hmm. or having a, you know, massively canceled book tour. I was also supposed to go do an off Broadway run of an hour I've been working on and then go to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and that's also all canceled. So it does sort of feel like in the last couple of years, it's just been like, sure, make whatever plans you want, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. but like things are going to turn out how they turn out. And uh, I think that's a little bit, you know, what I could take from it, I guess, Mm -hmm. or what I'm trying to take Mm -hmm. from it is Mm -hmm. that, um, be methodical, come up with ideas, and then turns out none of that shit's going to happen. So you better be able to pivot. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, you did deliberately, it seems not write about your marriage and divorce in the book. Um, you did tell your first sort of jokes material about it on Conan like about a month or so ago. Um, yeah. so can you just talk about that experience a little bit of, of why you, of, of talking about it publicly for the first time in that setting? Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't write about it in the book, uh, for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that it was, you know, ongoing uh, mm-hmm. in my emotional life. Um, yeah. and I just felt like the best thing I could do for myself and for everybody involved would not, would be to not put something down on the page while it was so fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really glad that that's the, cause it was, it was like, uh, a very strange adjustment to have to make, mm-hmm. but I'm really glad that that's the choice I made. Phew. Yeah. Phew. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it was important to me to get a chance to be on Conan talking about this. And like, I, I have, I so appreciate JP Buck, who's the booker there, like working Mm. with me over time to come up with that set because it, this is a massively important and emotionally resonant thing that happened in my life. And because I'm a public figure. I did not want to live it out in real time. I felt a lot of responsibility to protect myself, protect other parties. Mm-hmm. And then it just feels like, but I'm not going to skip that. You know, I'm not going to yeah. skip that that happened. Like mm-hmm. as a comic, it's one of the biggest things that's ever happened in my life. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wanted to have a chance to talk about it. I really appreciated the chance to like get to tell some jokes. And yeah. they're, you know, they're about me. They're not like shitty mm. and, and punching down. Mm. They're about like pain and getting through it. And yeah. um, I also think that's pretty relatable. And for queer folks, this is like a new experience for so many of us. And when I would tour mm-hmm. around, like as I was working on that material for Conan, 
I would have so many people come up to me after shows and just be like, yeah, nobody's talking about this yet. I feel like I was meeting with a divorce lawyer. That person was asking me, what about kids? Kids factor into this? Are you out of your mind? I said, we couldn't afford to buy kids. <laughs> this is 90% about pet visitation. I swear to God, I swear to God, Every queer couple I know who has split is dealing with an elaborate and court-mandated pet visitation schedule. <laughs> if there was a way for GPS to indicate this, you would see most traffic in every major city is just used stick shift Subarus. <laughs> carting dogs with hyphenated last names back and forth between vegetarian restaurants. <laughs> Is that part of what your uh, new hour is about? Uh, yeah, it was called Separately, oh, okay. um, which is also a very funny title for a yeah. show that I'm now trying to figure out how to potentially <laughs> do from my apartment. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, you know, uh, yeah, it's an hour about like, I mean, I guess it's the same thing that I was just talking about where, mm. you know, I really made so many conscious decisions, so many choices that I thought were right. And it turns out none of us can control outcomes. Mm. And it's, you know, yeah, it's an hour about that. Yeah. Well, I hope that we get to see it at some point. Thank you. Um, so I end every episode by asking uh, comedians, who who is a, a comedian who has made you laugh the hardest in your life, either could be on stage or even someone, you know, off stage. Oh, wow. Um, yes. I mean, okay. It's like complicated because the first thing I thought of in my brain was Howard Kremer, who, when he used to mm. do, uh, my show, put your hands together at the UCB theater was like, always somebody that I laughed at when yeah. watching that person perform live, especially when you're like hosting a weekly show, the opportunity to laugh is like fucking rare. Like, yeah. you, like as a comic, the much more often it's just, that's uh -huh. good. Like yeah. that's like yeah. total flat affect. Mm -hmm. That's good. Um, but the only reason I say it's complicated is because like who I laughed at like the most, like, Oh my God. When I used to very early, I got to tour with Maria Bamford a couple times and mm -hmm. like, when I would watch her do a full hour, like, yeah. I mean, watching her do a full hour again and again, you're with her at a club, you watch the hour six times or whatever mm -hmm. it is. It would be so good every time. Yeah. Unbelievable. And, and uh, I've gotten to do that a lot, like early on when I was opening for other people, like mm -hmm. do my set, then walk around the back and watch the thing. And that's always a fucking pleasure to see the same material like mm -hmm. evolve and work and like yeah. watch the joke get better. It's a fucking pleasure. Um, but watching it with Maria, really impactful on just yeah. my sense as a human, what you can share, what can be funny. Mm. Awesome. Um, well, thank you so much for doing this. This was my, uh, my first full zoom podcast uh i've done all the other ones in person and you made it incredibly easy um so i really appreciate that um, i'm so glad uh, that you're this doing is a, this. a new world and um i'm gonna keep doing it like this so for for a while um, yeah i mean it, to me i feel very happy for you that you're having 
finding the way to adapt to the thing that you do to your home because yeah. like you know I'm just trying not to lose my fucking mind exactly when the things that I loved to do are <laughs> being whittled away you know like I so I'm glad that we figured this yeah. out yeah absolutely. it was my pleasure to speak and with um you. and I hope that um that your girlfriend is doing okay um through all yeah this. thank you thank you she's um she's home in the hospital she's healing up and uh yeah. I'm sure that it, I'm sure I will eventually have jokes about it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, thank you so much. Um, and yeah, have a good rest of your day. We'll so good soon. to talk to you, Matt. Okay. Bye. Bye. I mean, is she the best or what? Thank you again to Cameron Esposito for sharing so much with me on this week's show. Her new book, Save Yourself, is available for purchase now wherever you get your books. And we will put a link to purchase it in the show notes for this episode as well. You can watch her special, Rape Jokes, at CameronEsposito.com. And please consider donating to Rain when you do. If you like this show, please tell your friends and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for the Daily Beast, with audio production by Red Rock Music. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.